Good morning. Um, so today's sermon will be a little different, um, and I will explain more in a few minutes as to why. Um, but rest assured, I have Ryan's blessing and permission. So, um, growing up, my grandmother had a magnet on her fridge that clearly left an imprint on my memory that I still remember it to this day. And the magnet read, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Um, that's, uh, to put it mildly, not sufficient anymore, um, if it ever was. I would even argue it might go so far as to be dangerous. People have found a way to abuse God's word in countless ways over the centuries. Um, this is one of the ways where we simplify it um, to a point that um, doesn't really value its complexity and its God-given inspiration. I would even go as far as to say that we do a disservice to our kids um, if we raise them with that kind of mentality when it comes to approaching scripture. Because what happens, inevitably, is that they're going to grow up and they're going to go off to college and they're going to learn something in a history class or an archaeology class where, you know, King so-and-so didn't reign for the exact years that Second Chronicles says he reigned for. Or um, this country didn't have the boundaries that this book of the Bible said it had. Things like that. And all of a sudden, they're not going to know what to do with their faith. And yet, all that being said, the high value we place on Scripture must not be compromised. This is a non-negotiable. Why? We desperately need Scripture. We need a common grounding text and story we need it for the spiritual nourishment and moral and ethical guidance that it provides given from God. And most importantly, we need it because it gives us Jesus and we need to trust that it does so reliably. And so as a church, as, as most churches do, we, we hold the Bible in very high regard. Uh, we believe it, it ought to be one of our top values. So what does that look like? Um, I would argue that it doesn't look like treating the Bible as a rule book, though there are rules there. Um, I would argue it doesn't look like treating the Bible as God's love letter to us, although it is that. Um, it's not treating the Bible as God's roadmap to heaven, though clearly the, the scriptures speak to us of heaven coming down to earth. If you would, I want to I point you to the back of your bulletin. Um, if I've been told that I'm not in the majority here, but I read everything, like no matter how seemingly trivial, I can be walking through a hallway and I'm gonna read whatever's in the bulletin board no matter where I'm at, that's just what I do. Um, other people apparently aren't like that. Um, I, from the day, the day we began coming to this church, I read everything on the back of this bulletin because I was interested in it. Um, maybe you haven't done that, that's okay. We're gonna read one of these uh, briefly together. Um, so under scripture, it says, we believe that God speaks a living word to us in the books of the Old and New Testaments, living because Holy Spirit is involved, right? Without the Holy Spirit, it's just another book with ink, ink on a paper. His words nourish us spiritually, give us moral and practical guidance, and provide the foundation of our common faith. Above all, we receive scripture as a story of God's kingdom that captures us in an alluring mixture of poetry narrative, laws, wisdom, songs, prophecies, parables, and letters. I've always appreciated the emphasis that's placed here on genre. Um, I think it's really important that we read in scripture and we're interpreting scripture. We pay attention to the fact that it is written in different genres. 
um, meaning that I'm not going to read um, like it's a science textbook. I'm going to read it like it's the Word of God in the various genres that it's written in. What I really want to focus on this morning, though, is the line about it being the story of God's kingdom. And I'm going to focus there for a variety of reasons, but one is because when Jesus arrived on the scene, um, in all four of the Gospels, in the first three to five chapters, after he's been baptized by John the Baptist, after he's had his temptation seen in the wilderness, and he arrives and he's explaining why he's come, every time it has something to do with the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, depending on which gospel writer we're reading. So as in the gospel passage we read earlier, he came declaring that the kingdom of God had drawn near in him, right? Um, we see language of this also in Colossians, right? The, Jesus transferring us into his kingdom. There's a particular way of approaching scripture in its entirety that I wanted to share with you briefly this morning. Um, it's just one way of reading scripture. It's not the only way. Um, but I wanted to share it with you for a number of reasons, one of which is we don't often talk about Scripture in its entirety. Um, we usually read these disjointed passages, and, and we speak from them, and that's great, um, but sometimes it's also helpful to think about it in its larger, larger form. Uh, the great Catholic philosopher, Alastair McIntyre, said, I cannot answer the question, what ought I to do, unless I first answer the question, of which story am I a part? And I find that really, really poignant when we're talking about scripture. Um, if I'm looking for guidance on what to do in my life, I need to know something about the plot. I need to know something about the character I'm supposed to be and the role I'm supposed to play. And so this model of looking at scripture is, is often called the five-act kind of drama of redemption model. Um, and it's patterned after a typical Shakespearean play. Just, just a brief caveat, there's disagreements about how many acts there should be and how do we categorize them, how, do, how we categorize them and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to bore you with that today. Um, but the basic, basic outline, we begin in Act 1 with creation, right? God creates everything that we know. And to the point, when we see God creating human beings, we are created imago Dei, in the image of God. Right off the bat, God's word is intimating the idea of kingdom. The concept of the Imago Dei, of the image of God, was a royal concept. People, people were, it comes from this ancient Near Eastern idea where kings had royal emissaries in distant lands that kind of represented them and extended their reign into those places. That is the concept with which we're drawing on, that we are kind of God's royal emissaries on earth. So right off the bat, right off the bat, the, the language and the concept of kingdom is there. Acts 2, the fall. We mess it all up, right? We pursue our own kingdoms. We want to be king instead of God being king. We bring oppression and injustice and deceit and mockery. We don't treat each other well. We don't treat ourselves well. All the relationships are broken. Act 3, Israel. Israel was God's particular historically conditioned means of mediating his universal story to the world. It was a kingdom, right? And yet even at that, if you know scripture well enough, you know that there's tension there, right? There were different perspectives on whether they should have a king or not. They wanted a king, but they wanted a king so they could be like other nations. And God kind of gave in to that. And yet still God blessed it and used it. So we have this, this actual historically conditioned particular kingdom in which there were laws 
to provide for the least of these. There were edicts about taking care of the exile and the sojourner and the vulnerable and the orphans and the widows. Act four, Jesus. Jesus comes to show us the true nature of God's kingdom. We see this especially in the Beatitudes, right? When we read Jesus' teachings um, and all of his kind of great reversal ideas where the last shall be first and the least shall be greatest, these are hints at kind of the nature of God's kingdom. And so Jesus comes, himself being the king, and in his crucifixion, we see the victory over the kingdoms of sin and death and transferring us into his kingdom. And then in the resurrection, we see the inauguration of the kingdom of God. This is kind of the, the significance of the ascension, the, the, the imagery of Jesus being raised into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, to show that the kingdom of God has officially begun in him. A brief aside here while we're talking about Jesus. We, we heard read <clears throat> in the Colossians passage um, about this beautiful, it's called the Christ hymn, this beautiful paragraph or so, um, with really lofty, exalted image, imagery about how Jesus was kind of present from the beginning and equal with God and, and um, creator of all things, the, the preeminent of all things. In particular, <coughs> excuse me, Christ is said to be the image of the invisible God. And then later on in verse 19, that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There's a similar concept um, expressed in Hebrews, where Christ is said to be the radiant glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I lift these up because I think this is important to consider when we kind of wrestle with Scripture, when we wrestle with the harder passages, the gray areas, the questions that we have. If we want to know what God looks like, we look to Christ. I think that's what the writers of Scripture are getting at in these passages like Colossians and Hebrews. I think we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to our children, we owe it to the church, to, to society at large, to be honest um, about Scripture and to acknowledge those places of Scripture that are hard. Um, I think we need to acknowledge those places of Scripture where God might seem violent or where God's character might seem to come into question. We don't toss those out. We don't disregard them. They're still part of God's word. We believe they're still inspired by God there for a reason, but we read them in light of what we know to be true about God in Jesus, and we bring them under subjection to that. Act five, the church, where we are now. New Testament being its charter text, right? Um, and the culmination, this is kind of where some of the debate comes in in terms of whether it should be an Act 6 or not. The culmination of Act 5 is the consummation of Christ's kingdom, right? When the kingdom comes in its entirety on earth and all is well and no more tears, no more brokenness, no more sin, no more evil. So we know where the story is going and we've been entrusted to play a part in that. And so Act 5 is us in the church. And the beauty of kind of looking at the acts of scripture, so to speak, is that it helps us think faithfully about how to read the rest of scripture. For example, the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is still an integral part of the drama of God's story of redemption in the world, right? It's still an integral part of God's revelation to us, but much of its prescriptions and moral codes and edicts, well, they're appropriate for act three not Act 5. One of the, um, the significance 
points of this kind of way of looking at scripture is that it's not just a story, right? We, we've, maybe you've heard scripture talked about as kind of this one big narrative, and that's part of it. But it's not just that, it's also a drama. And therefore, we have a role to play, right? We are each called to live as citizens of God's kingdom, embodying and pointing to themes of that kingdom like rescue and redemption and renewal and restoration. And so we need the first four acts to make sense of where we are now in Act 5. We take our cues from them, but we're also not taking the stage in the first century. And so part of what it means to wrestle as people of God today with Scripture and the drama of redemption that he gives to us in it is what does it look like to faithfully and authentically live into and perform that drama in the year 2019 in Ithaca, New York? N.T. Wright, um, as he's explaining this model, he says of it that Christians are therefore free to improvise, but not free to play out of tune. I thought that was a really helpful distinction. Inevitably, we're going to have areas of life in the 21st century that Scripture never knew to address, right? That's just part of what it means to live in the here and now. And so we, we do what we can to study it and take our cues from it, we're going to have to improvise at some point. And so I think Holy Spirit serves as kind of our, our acting coach and our director, so to speak, to kind of give us guidance and wisdom into how we do that and gives us freedom to do that and yet not to play out of tune. Going back to uh, this kind of metaphor of the Shakespearean play that this model is taken from, merely knowing the plot of a Shakespearean play is not the same as performing it. Or for that matter, reciting the lines. You can be really good at those things and you can memorize them and you can do those things, but that's not the same thing as performing it. And yet, both are fundamentally necessary, right? We must know scripture. Go back with me to uh, the reading of Deuteronomy 11 earlier. Moses is at Mount Sinai. He's giving the people the law. This is what Israel looks back to as the beginning of, of them as a people of God. And he's giving them the law. And he's exhorting them to remember. To remember God's signs and deeds in Egypt. Remember what God did at the Red Sea. Remember what he did to you in the wilderness. The scripture in the Old Testament in particular is replete with exhortations to remember. The psalmists are all over that, right? Remember what he did here. Remember what he, what he did for you there. And then again, consider the impassioned pleas to treasure God's word in our heart. Put these words of mine in your heart and your soul. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as a frontlet on your forehead. This is where the Orthodox Jews get some of their dress code from, right? Teach them to your children talking about them when you're at home, talking about them when you're away, talking about them when you lie down, talking about them when you rise. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so that you see them on the way in and on the way out. Consider the passion and the urgency that Moses uses here to exhort us to remember and to treasure God's word. And yet, God's work in us through scripture is significantly more about our reformation 
than it is about imparting information. And so we remember and we study and we treasure it in order to allow it to restore and restory us. Because if you're like me, we go off path here and there. And we tend to choose our own story. We think we have a better idea for the plot. And so we look to scripture to draw us into God's grand redemptive drama that is the coming kingdom of God and to empower and inform our performance of it. So friends, the world is our stage. Let's take our places. Amen.